0: edlo rolled over his body was alive with vindictive hatred and he stared up at hondo you ain't heard the last of this he said thickly then i'll keep listening hondo said turning back into the saloon the door closed and edlo remained on the ground staring at the blackness Welcome to Genre. Each month we pick a different theme of books and read a different selection from that. Uh, This month we're doing westerns. We have read The Shootist by Glenn Swarthrout, True Grit by Charlie Portness, and now Hondo by Louis Lamour. I'm Bob. I'm John. I'm Zach. So, what happens in this book? A lot of
1: sick gunfights, a lot of manly action, a lot of cards. You know, it's just a—it's a classic story of cowboys and Indians.
0: Yeah, this book did seem to be much more action-oriented than the other books. It didn't feel dramatically different than the other books. I mean, it had all the all the classics of the western—you know, the shootout, the uh, you know, the violent, rootless men, and even the romance too. I felt like it was kind of a mainstay from the genre.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a—it's a book with a heart. It's basically the story of this dude, Hondo Hondo Lane. And he's uh, a kind of a lone ranger. He's just walking on his own uh, through Apache country. He's neither He neither belongs in a community, nor does he belong with the Apaches. He's sort of a man caught in between. And his horse dies, and then he, needing a place to stay, ends up finding a house with a lady and her son. From this, uh, something of a romantic attachment ensues. And by the end of the story, he's going to have to defend his woman and also his comrades. Quite a simple story. I like what you said about
0: him being a man in between cultures of sorts. Because as we find out, Hondo lived with the Apache for some years. Uh, He had a wife with them. He speaks their language. So now as he's uh, enrolled in the military in this kind of territorial war with the apache he seems to have some sort of empathy and understanding with them that the other soldiers seem to lack whereas they just see kind of violence and savagery and and sometimes even trickery he sees brilliant tacticians at one point comparing their chief to napoleon bonaparte
1: yeah he says everything that napoleon knows the apache's already knew perhaps even before napoleon came along and you know something there's a small detail but did you notice that Hondo Lane walks around wearing moccasins, not boots? I missed that. That's that. super interesting. Yeah, he walks around in moccasins. So this is a, you know, he, he cuts a kind of cowboy type figure. And, you know, in the movie, he's played by John Wayne. But in the book here, he's wearing moccasins.
0: He he did have a hanging fringe on his, like, leather jacket. And I remember at one point, yeah. one of the characters was like, you know, what's that for? At, and, you know, that kind of like hanging, mm. dangling leather fringe thing, we, we, I think we associate that with kind of like a Disney's Pocahontas yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, like Native American outfit. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and it was interesting because he, he gave a, he gave a
1: real defense of it, you know, the utility of it and keeping, uh, water off of your, your leather clothing. Yeah. And, you know, it's really curious because he's characterized in this way where he's, he's definitely like, you know, you might say like coded in some sense as kind of like, an Apache but the book begins with his horse getting killed uh, by two Apaches who are trying to kill him because he is after all still a white man and like you said there appears to be some kind of territorial war that's broken out a period of amnesty but now it seems like something's yeah. gone wrong <laughs> I don't even think it matters what but basically now it's cowboys versus Indians again and Hondo's caught in the middle the whites broke yeah. the treaty,
2: yeah. and so the Apaches decided if they're on Apache land, no white man can survive on yeah. Apache land. So they're going through and killing a lot of people. And I think at one point, the pony soldiers arrive, so the American military arrive, and Honda has worked for them before, even been a spy for them at one mm. point. And when they arrive, they say that uh, Vitorio and his Apache soldiers have gone around and killed like over a thousand settlers. So there they're a real a real threat for these white people who are settling, and there is a lot of tension because they're they're kind of at war now that the treaty has been broken. Yeah. And it's interesting to see Honda, like you mentioned, the fringe, he knows all of these skills, he knows the military tactics, and he used to be like a member of the Apache community. It's interesting to see him mm-hmm. now. Still, like, recognizing the validity of the Apache, but also going to war. So it is, it's a very fair treatment for this character, I think, because he is not belittling anyone.
0: I, I honestly haven't seen very many, um, like straight cowboy versus Indian, uh, Western films or read very many books that are really of this theme, but my understanding of the genre has been kind of like the reputation it's built for having like a very simplistic yeah. uh, black-and-white view of, Civilization, of, versus you know, the Wild West.
1: And, uh, these basic binaries.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah that kind exactly. of thing. And it was interesting that the narrator of this story wasn't necessarily portraying uh, the, the clash of, I, I don't know, civilizations, I guess we could say that, uh, uh, in that specific light. Uh, Bob, you mentioned about how Um, it was the, the white people who broke the treaty. And I think that this is like a a heavily acknowledged part of the book. One of the, one of the Apache says like, oh, the white men's words are like wind. (laughs) Uh, in the sense of everyone acknowledges that it was the, the Western settlers who, who broke all the treaties. You know, the Apache aren't just enacting unjustified aggression. They're, they're defending land that by treaty is theirs. It was an interesting portrayal by Louis Lemoore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a
2: there's an interesting quote. Kondo says, "There is no word for lie in Apache." So now that they've broken the treaty, it's like an outside force this this ability to lie. It's like an outside evil force. You know, if mm. you were on the Apache side, it would be like reading Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, and all of these yeah. liars have come down into your <laughs> Apache territory, and they're they're like orcs orcs invading the hills
1: yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and there's another part in the book when um Toro, the lead the leader of the apaches asks hondo to basically for the sake of his life you know threatening his life for saying okay what we want you to do is uh we want you to work with us and we want you to lie to one of you uh, one of the other white people mm. and he refuses to follow this mm-hmm. command even though he's you know he's been threatened with death because he knows that If he agreed to lie for the Apaches, actually, that would put him in a worse light for them than if he refused their request, but in doing so refused to lie. So it's actually a very big deal for them, whether you tell the truth or whether you tell a lie as to whether you can be integrated with the Apache community or not.
0: Yeah. And this is an interesting bit of characterization for Hondo as someone between these two cultures, because even though he's making these kind of interpersonal relationships and really interpersonal ceasefires with the Apache tribe. He's not willing to sell out his cavalry, you know, by any means. Uh, he's still very much a person on that side fighting them. It's just that he himself is not entirely that cavalry.
1: And later in the book, we have a a, a kind of a parallel situation in which the soldiers who come in toward the end, who eventually defeat vitoro's Apaches, they ask... Hondo, as the expert on the Apache sort of guerrilla style of fight, they ask Hondo to lead them to where Vittoro is. And he says, no, I refuse to lead you there. I gave Vittoro my word that I wouldn't do that.
0: So there's this moment where the cavalry wants Hondo Lane to come out with them and scout this really rough country up ahead. Um, and McKay bows and turns to Hondo and says, if you will saddle up Lane, Hondo says, can't go. McKay looked at him as if he had not heard right. A slight frown gathered between his brows. You said you were not going? That's right. But why? McKay was incredulous. Gave my word I wouldn't. Your word? To whom? Vittoro, the chief of the Apache. Surely, Lieutenant McKay expostulated, a word given to an Indian desperado can't be... Lieutenant! Angie interrupted. As an officer and a gentleman, surely you must agree that one's word given to anyone is binding. Of course, McKay flushed a little. Sorry, you must remind me, Mrs. Lowe. I forgot myself.
1: This is a great moment. And I think this is also a really great introduction to this character of Angie as someone who, like Hondo, is very much puts a great deal of importance on integrity and truth. And Angie is the mother of uh, the boy Johnny, who Hondo takes care of uh, at times and teaches the ways of the Apache and it's ultimately the love interest of the more romantic aspect of this book. And the reason he doesn't go and the word he'd given to Vitoro is that he told, promised Vitoro that he would protect this woman, Angie. And, you know, throughout the story, there's this very like powerful love narrative between Hondo and Angie. And it's a little bit of a complex love narrative because when Hondo first meets Angie at the beginning of the book, she already has a husband. But her husband is... Some low life guy called Ed Lowe, and he's basically left his his wife and his son in the middle of Apache country while this turf war is going on, so that he can go into the town and gamble with with these other low life characters so Hondo comes in and he 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 and Angie strike up a very close bond, and I think this is like very key to it is this idea of like being truthful or being um, honest and having integrity. There's a quote here about uh, Angie in her life, and this is when she's not sure if Hondo will return, having left her at a certain point. She talks about her father, and she said, her father has always been a man with whom she could talk, and those talks had reached into her present life with their clear-cut wisdom, their simple truth. And I think, again, it's, it's very clear that within... For Angie this truth is very important, and for Hondo it's very important as well. And I think this really brings them together.
0: That's really interesting because I read Angie being more so focused on, on the future and on responsibility. So like when if we bring back uh the Ed Lowe character, her her rightful husband, who has left them to go gamble and drink in the in the town, part of what motivates him is the idea that he can make more money. Playing the card tables, um, you know, basically winning the gold pieces of other people's sweat mm-hmm. and labor, then he can he can make more money doing that than he can himself tending to his own um uh, his own farm and his own household. And there's a really interesting um synchronicity between uh, Angie's view of the world. And uh, Hondo's view of the world that I think makes them actually uh, extremely compatible with each other. So going back to uh, another quote from Angie's father, who she likes to repeat, and I'm just going to assume that, you know, when she does this, she's taking on her father's wisdom, you know, kind of as her yeah. own uh, guiding principle. Uh, she quotes her father as saying, we do not own the land, Angie. We hold it in trust for tomorrow. We take our living from it. But we must leave it rich for your son and for his sons and for all of those who shall follow. Mm. So to me, I felt like this was kind of like a, a guiding uh, compass for, for Angie. And I felt like that explained much of her perspective. But then later, we get Hondo coming in with a very similar quote. Hondo uh, thinks he's going to die. And this is what he says. And he sat here ready to die. For what? He left behind him nothing. A few people who would remember for a day or an hour. A man needed something on which to build. A man without a woman, without a home, without a child, with no man at all. There's a sense of, you know, when you have two puzzle pieces and they just kind of click together. That's
1: that's how I felt. Mm, Absolutely. So I'm I'm curious. So you mentioned here that you say that you think Angie is quite future-focused. But at the same time, it also seems that she's very much nostalgic for the kind of life her father aspired to and something that she seems to want to continue. Mm. I think that's a very interesting relationship because it's like you have nostalgia for this idea of, you know, not owning the land, but just tending the land for the sake of the future generations. So in her viewpoint, we have at once something that's quite nostalgic, but also very much focused on the future and the next generation. I think that's quite an interesting worldview that she has. Yeah,
0: that's a really great point. I I don't know if we can... um... So like two words that come to mind are like nostalgia and like traditional traditionalism, mm. I suppose. Like yeah, if Anji had been able to maintain this lifestyle, I would say, oh, she's just a traditionalist. Mm. But actually the point she's at now is she can think back to the, you know, the good land, the good farm that her father had, and she knows that's good, but at this point it's fallen away. Mm. You know, the axes have gone rusty. Yeah. Uh, the water drainage has, has been washed out after a big rain. So she is actually quite nostalgic for a kind of lost um,
1: good past right.
0: that her husband can't provide for her. And
1: the reason that her, uh, her land and her property have fallen into such a poor condition is because the man of the house, this guy Ed Lowe, who's trying to profit off other people's gains and other people's hard work through gambling... It's because he didn't do his own responsibilities to maintain the property. And now with Hondo coming in, even though Edlo still alive at the beginning of the book, Hondo comes in and all of a sudden she has a man in the house who is once again able to revivify her property. And also in turn, this idea of like passing on the land to her, her, her progeny and continuing also her father's work. So it's like Hondo is like the, like you mentioned a puzzle piece. And I think Hondo is very much the missing puzzle piece for Angie. And it also seems like Angie is the missing puzzle piece for Hondo. It's really quite a touching.
0: I have a pet theory that, uh, all Westerns, uh, at their heart are romance books. I think Bob <laughs> and I actually talked about this when we first read, uh, uh, Writers of the Purple Sage. But this book yeah. in particular, um, the action scenes seemed quite secondary to the relationship between Hondo and Angie. And even thinking back to the, the climax of the book, uh, I, I felt like the climax of the book was them getting together and finally riding off into the sunset. Yeah. The actual, uh, final battle, uh, in which Hondo kills Silva, um, that happens in this kind of like very scattershot, you know uh very impressionistic imagery like it just it just happens across a couple of paragraphs and there's no real emotional yeah. payoff to it
1: it's a blip yeah, th- this, yeah. this fight with <laughs> silver who's kind of like the bad egg among the apaches all most of the other apaches are uh, represented as being very much moral and upstanding like good men it's only really silver that's not mm, i wouldn't really? say that who else would you pick out
2: Uh, So, well, Vittorio is about to kill Angie. Like, they they show up Mm. and they've already killed the whole family. Yeah. Who didn't leave the Apache's land. And they only don't kill Angie because Johnny shoots Silva in the head with a gun. So, basically, (laughs) Silva gets off his horse, has a knife, starts walking towards Angie. And Angie, like a... Well, she's pretty badass. She tells herself, I know not to run. I know not to make a face. She stands there completely like a statue, not afraid, just standing mm. her ground while a man is walking at her yeah. with a knife. And she knows that's the right thing to do. Silva's getting closer, and then um Vittorio eventually gets off his horse, too, with a knife, but for a different reason. Because Johnny has come out with this giant colt that's as big as he is. Six-year-old boy. Suddenly shoots it when he sees Silva. Six-year-old boy. Yeah. It grazes the top of Silva's head, knocks him right. out, and then uh you think when Vittorio gets off... He's gonna kill them. Mm. He has a knife, but that's when he actually makes Johnny his blood yeah. brother. Just splits open his thumb. So, although he's he's nice here, he's killed a lot of people, and he, he's asked his people to kill a lot. Sure, of people.
1: but I would I would respond to that by pointing out that they are at war here. You know, this
2: is war. Yeah, but 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 the people that they're killing are not soldiers. The people that they're killing are families.
1: Yeah, I understand that, but I think there's a difference between like this we don't see that well firstly we don't see that we just know that's happened but the action we see of Vitoro in response so vitoro Vitt- has killed people definitely and but this this is only because as we already mentioned the terms of the treaty were broken vitoro i think is the one that brokered this treaty and i think that he did so in the so that he wouldn't have to kill families right so if he's pushed into a corner where they've broken the treaty he has no option but to fault fo- stay true to his, his word that if you break this treaty, you'll regret it. So I don't see that that as necessarily a choice of Vittorio. Vittorio has no option but to do that as the leader of the Apaches. But here in this moment right here, he could kill this woman and her child and nobody would touch him for it, but he doesn't do that. He's, he's characterised in this book as having still a very very much a moral compass. He won't kill women and children. And almost all of the Apaches constantly no. say, we won't hurt women and children
2: well no they they do acknowledge that apaches do are not good yeah. towards women like hondo says that at one point he's like they they will treat the children nice and if they've killed the whole family because we do walk into a scene where a family has been mm. killed and they said they'll usually be nice to the children raise the children as one of their own but they don't do the same uh. for women
0: well i think there's a bit of a discrepancy between the apaches that were presented as human characters who you know uh our narrator uh, gives us and our, our protagonists interact with and the Apache of the reputation in the story. Uh, If that, if that makes sense, like the stories we hear about the Apache in this book are quite violent and the, the kind of after effects of, of, you know, the violence of Apache raids or whatever uh, appear quite violent, but I feel like the characters we meet are very easy to empathize with. Uh, they're coming from a very human position.
1: Right. With the exception you would say of this character Silva who is kind of a just a bad man, he's a bit of a monster. Or well, he's a torturer. I think, He's legendary for I think Silva
0: people. I think Silva is not simply just like a, a you know, a black hole of uh of he's no different than any of the gunslingers and Glenn Swarthrout's the shootist. You know, people who are perhaps down on their luck, people who are insecure about, you know, their position and in, in you know, in position to the gang or the crew and they want to prove themselves and they're desperate to do so. At least that's how I read Silva in the sense of he's a weak person who wants to appear strong.
2: Hmm. Yeah, but the char- the characters in the Shootist are awful men. Those are terrible people. Silva's pretty terrible too. He relishes in torturing people, like staking them on an anthill so ants eat their legs, uh, leaving people out in the sun so they die slowly. He's legendary in the Apache for being a torturer. So Vittoro is a good man, and I was wrong. Angie does say, I heard that the legend of great Vittoro did not make war upon women. So he is good Mm. towards women. Obviously, Silva, you're right. He is just a weak man trying to prove himself because, one, he gets bested by a six-year-old. Everyone makes fun of him for it. Uh, Hondo constantly makes fun of him because he's like, I see all the scalps on your horse, but aren't those all the scalps of women and children and old men? And Silva gets pissed off. Uh, so yeah, he's a, he's a weak man trying to prove himself and keeps failing and it makes him matter and matter and matter. And Angie recognizes that when Johnny shoots him, she's like, I could see the hate then. And I know that it was going to turn into something, uh, monstrous eventually.
0: Hondo's interaction with him is, was really interesting because up to that point, Hondo had not met Silva, but Hondo immediately identified that Silva could be, um, I suppose like taken down a peg or, you know, uh, verbally disarmed a bit or prodded by, um, you know, insulting his masculinity in front of his friends. And I can't help, but feel like Silva can't catch a break. You know, here's this guy, you know, Silva's first big win. And now this big win that, you know, finally on Silva's first time that he's going to get something for himself. Uh, here comes Hondo ready to make him look like a fool again in front of his friends. Um, he just can't win. I don't
2: know. I I I think that guy sucks. Like he's he's made tons of breaks for himself. Like he does have scalps all over his horse. He's scalped plenty of women and children. Like he's been proving himself constantly, but you know, to know there's no limit. I mean, we have
1: to remember to that necessarily a hundred percent correct way to portray him. he is. We know him to be morally weak, and you know, we know him to be a weak person deep down, but as far as like tangible power and prestige goes he is quite powerful and very prestigious among this group i think that's an interesting thing to look at because every time we see him
2: he fails you know but obviously he is second in command so how the hell did that happen Hmm. and is that some sort of commentary on like vittoro was a good leader silva now is going to be a horrible leader like when we read the shootist we have the the great legendary shootist uh who turns out to be a good moral man and now the bad apple son's going to take over. And with the same power, the same power, he's going to be an evil man. So I think Silva's going to lead this army into destruction. Whereas Vitoro, uh, yes, he's back into a corner. Yes, uh, the white settlers have broken the treaty. And he's just saying, here's mm. the treaty. Here's the terms of the treaty. Uh, move on or die. Silva is going to ruin uh, all the Apache through needless fighting, I think.
1: Well, I think that's... I want to go back to Zach's point a little bit. Zach, you talked about a distinction between someone's reputation and the actions of theirs that we actually see. And I think, you know, Vitoro and Silva both have, you know, a reputation for being able to commit, like, actions of great cruelty and and violence. But the difference is, the actions we see of Vitoro in this book, the things we actually see him play out and the situations we actually see him deal with, I can't think of a single instance that reveal him to be anything other than, you know, a, a good man, if we put it in simple terms. Whereas... Even even a sweet yeah, man, yeah. Like, sure, he's definitely committed, committed crimes and killed women and children at some point, I'm sure, but what we see does not reveal that in his character, but what we see of Silver, nothing good comes of it.
0: Very true. John, yeah. I, I want to poke <laughs> at uh, what you said about him being a good man, because I think this is an opportunity for us to think about uh, Louis L'Amour's values as an author and what kind of values he's portraying in his narrative. Okay. So I think we can all agree that, uh, Vittoro is, um, I don't want to say he's a protagonist, but I also won't say he's not, I, w- I also won't say he's an antagonist. He's, I, I, I think Lamour is portraying Vittoro as a good person. Uh, on the, on the contrary, uh, I think it's not controversial to say that Silva, is an antagonist. Like, plain and simple, he is a bad person. So, you know, both of these people are ostensibly on the same side, which is to say both of them are potential threats to our protagonist, Hondo. Mm. What separates uh, Vittoro and Silva? Like, what character qualities would you assign to each of them? How are they foils to each other?
1: I think that... I think that v- Vitoro, like Hondo acts in the best interests of his people. I think that also makes him a good leader. And if I think he's made the treaty, because peace is better for his people than war. He doesn't want to see his men die and his, you know, his, his communities die. But if he has to, if the treaty gets broken, he's going to go to war. But his priority is always the good of the Apaches as a whole, right? He's a, he's a leader in that sense. Whereas Silver, when he becomes the leader, the first thing on his mind is not the, the good of the Apaches and the good of his community, but it's to carry out his own personal vendetta against a six-year-old boy. Yeah. I He'd think that dictator. to me is the key difference between the two. Imagine if Home Alone... <laughs> yeah. I, I forget that element of his... Uh, <laughs> if Marv his, became the, became of the leader of hatred is a six-year-old home boy, boy, that's and, like, quite funny. He's yeah. little boy and just, he just sets the hair on fire. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, I think, uh, there's a good scene that we've seen, we already mentioned that really shows how the, at least in like one-on-one, how different Vitoro and Silva are when they first come to meet Mm. Johnny. Like they both, they both have a knife, but they both use that knife very differently. Uh, Silva is about to kill Angie and Johnny. That's what he's going to do with his knife. And then when Vittoro gets off his horse, has a knife, walks right up to Johnny and makes him a blood brother and says, now you are Apache and I will protect you and I will protect your mother. Yeah,
1: that's a uh, very that's a different. interesting observation, Bob. I like the way you, yeah, I think that's a good point about how they use this knife. And it's like Silver used, wants to use this knife to hurt people and, you know, avenge his own personal gripes and his own personal feelings of hatred. Whereas Vittorio wants to use the knife essentially to, to build communities and to form communities. So to go back to what Zach, what you were saying about like Louis the Moors' moral compass, I think Louis the Moors' compass is that a, a good person who is one who acts for the sake of the community to which they belong and also takes care of the next generation. They're, they're always thinking about other people. They're thinking about the wider society and they're saying, how can I serve the society? Hondo goes into Angie's home and yeah, he's interested in Angie romantically, but he, he's also primarily saying like, I'm going to shoe the horses for you. I'm going to do this around the house. I'm going to make sure that the you know, I'm going to fix up the house a little bit. I'm going to educate your boy, Johnny and help raise your son, raise your son. Exactly. So he's, he's, his actions are directed toward the good, of those that are in his care, in a sense. And I think Vittoro acts in a very similar way for the Apaches. And on that level, they have their kindred kindred in that way. They're on opposite sides, but they share a, com- a a similar goal, which is the good of their people. And I feel like those are the characters that Louis L'Amour represents as being good, good people, good men, and also good women. And Angie is a very good woman. And the people who are the opposite of this are those that are just out for their own profit, like Silva and also Angie's husband, Ed Lowe.
2: I think it's similar to some of the things we've seen in these other like more gunslinger books, like *True Grit* and *The Shootist*. You you use a tool, and you can use it to uh, to help people around you who are in need, help your community, or you can use it, like you said, to be selfish and to make a name for yourself. Hmm.
1: And I think it goes to show as well. There's a kind of a funny thing because this idea of making a name for yourself is such an important part of westerns. Like when we think of. Uh True Grit. It's not True Grit, sorry. When we think of The Shootist uh, by Glennon Swarthout, (laughs) there's the part in that book when uh, books, the protagonist of that story, the famous gunman, killed over 30 men. And he says his most valuable things are, there's three most valuable things to him. His name, his reputation, and his soul. But he's ultimately a good man in that book as well. And I think it's a similar idea of he's looking out for the community. He wants to save money to educate the son of the woman who takes him in, which is obviously a very similar story to the one we have here in Hondo. And yet he's also managed to make a name for himself. So I think a common thread that I've noticed in these Western books is that you can ironically make a better name for yourself by looking out for the interests of other people than you can if you go out of your way to try and make a name for yourself. If you try and make a name for yourself you're going to end up doing really bad things and you're going to end up hurting the community and ultimately hurting yourself. Whereas if you just defend yourself and try and defend also the community you're you're in, then ironically, you make a name for yourself. That's a really interesting observation. I like that. Call it the Tao of the Western.
0: (laughs) The Tao of the Western. (laughs) I'm curious if these values uh, are specific to this book, or if this is a recurring uh, compass in all of Louis lamour's career um i think I think we just learned that Louis Lamour wrote over a hundred books in his lifetime which is absolutely mind boggling to think about the amount of work and uh, and labor that he that he put into creating these western stories
1: absolutely um and I just want to go on a tangent for yeah a he's a really
0: really interesting yeah, I character. feel
1: like i, I like the, the about the author section of this book, which is after the story finishes, is the best about the author biography I've ever read in my entire life. I think Louis the might be the coolest man who ever lived. Us, give us some highlights because I didn't. <laughs> give us some highlights because I didn't read it. All right, it. so here's the life of Louis the Moor. His, his previous jobs, other than being a writer, include being an elephant handler, an officer <laughs> on a tank destroyer in World War II, a seaman, a lumberjack, At one point he was shipwrecked in the West Indies and he's been stranded in the Mojave Desert. Not only this, he was a professional boxer who won almost all of his fights and he had a personal library of rare books containing over 17,000 volumes. This all in addition to the fact that we've already mentioned, he wrote over a hundred books. This man was an absolute colossus. So cool. I think uh,
0: I really enjoy i i you know it's hard to talk about tropes when we're talking about lives, but i mean really there are what what we're talking about right now is biography we're talking about someone's biography mm. uh that was written about them or that they themselves wrote and I love this this trope of this like <laughs> this like ubermensch author <laughs> yeah. uh we saw this with jack london mm. uh what bob what was it jack london did
2: oh well, he he traveled all the time and like he would save up, buy a boat, see how far he could get on the boat. He went all the way up to Alaska on a boat just to uh, learn how to mush dogs, the Alaskan gold rush.
0: Yeah, we also read those stories by Sir Richard Francis Burton um, where he would basically go around and live in all of these really interesting places and take take their stories and translate them into English for the first time. So, like, uh, he took the, uh, you know, the very ancient uh, vampire story from India that was written in Sanskrit and then, you know, brought it to, to England for the first time. also, you know, navigating, uh, you know, the Congo river. And, uh, I think he was one of the first Westerners to, um, the Hajj. Yeah. And I think he was one of the first Westerners to do the Hajj. Um, he's yeah, these, these authors whose lives are, uh, legends in and of themselves and and their books are really just part of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And I think it's also interesting how uh, this view of the author or like the author's role in society has uh, somewhat slipped out of how we think of authors today. I think that authors today are expected to be, um, you know, I, I guess you would say like maybe highly educated uh, in a traditional sense, mm. of you know, maybe they went to an uh, Ivy League university. Or just drunks. Um, they're plugged in. They're online. They're on Twitter. And I and I can't help but um, wonder what this kind of author or like this this vision of what it means to be an author would look like if we tried to transplant that vision into today. Um, I, I can't help but imagine that they would just be torn apart on Twitter while they're publicizing their, their big adventures, you know. Yeah. Uh, climbing th- mountains. I, I think the so. argument
2: would be, I think the argument is very piddly, but maybe it is good. The new frontier is, uh, the digital frontier. You know, what's gonna happen if we, uh, put more and more of ourselves into uh, artificial whatever? Uh, the, that, this you know, generation's line Limo would
1: be popping on Reddit. Not not yeah, yeah, Reddit or <laughs>
2: uh like um up uploading themselves is what I'm getting yeah. at. I don't have a cool way of saying that, but
1: hmm. Well, I feel like we're in some kind of transitionary period right now, because we can imagine an author of the future who has manifested themselves in multiple um, you know, various cybernetic beings and has I don't know, become part robot and yeah, <laughs> you know, gone, explored the singularity, or whatever. I don't know. We can imagine these new frontiers potentially in the future, but right now, I I, I don't see an author like it's it's impossible to imagine the Louis Lemoir of of the twenty first century of twenty twenty one. It it yeah, it's just so hard to understand. I almost see it as a, a parallel in academia. Right now, everyone in academia is a specialist, and outside of their specialty, they don't really know that much. Whereas the previous ideal, an earlier ideal of the educated person would be someone who knows about all sorts of topics, the Renaissance man, or, you know, a figure mm. like Aristotle who's writing about literally everything, but that's not viable anymore. So yeah. I, I wonder if it's a similar thing, but like on the well, level of you, life. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that Louis L'Amour was all of these things that we talked about, but one thing he wasn't was a cowboy living in the, 18, you know, the late 1800s. And I think today there's this sense of, if you're going to write about all these things, the, uh, the readerly audience expects some level of authenticity. Hmm. Um, and you know, one thing I do know about Louis L'Amour is that, you know, he moved, uh, you know, he, he was, he was kind of self-publicizing himself, uh, to sell his manuscripts to become Hollywood films. Like this is a person who is clearly writing from an age that comes after this Western. Hmm. And yeah, I think, I think today readers demand your Western authors to at least have lived in a rural area at the very least you can't have some city slicker creating a uh, a career writing cowboy stories
1: what what do you think of this do you think this is a do you think this is a justified view that we have right now or do you think do we lose something in this
0: i i mean if there's any way i would say it's not a justified view it's that i think maybe the discourse today uh, ignores the fact that these are um like these are genre fictions they are the these cowboy stories have more to do with each other their genesis their tropes their their uh dynamics and their conflicts have more to do with each other than they have to do with real life and history mm. so i think when we insist upon a kind of uh authorly realism a kind of authenticity we're ignoring the fact that um you know likely in my opinion uh someone who's read a hundred Western novels is likely going to write a better Western novel than someone who spent their entire life working on a
1: farm. Right. So it's kind of like a um, kind of like a craft knowledge almost. You know your craft, just like a, a carpenter knows the craft of making tables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: And I, I do like the idea of uh, you know these genre fiction authors as craftsmen in a sense Mm. of like uh you know they're they're aware of the tradition they have a hands-on experience of it and they're they they know what they're doing it's a product that they're pushing out Mm. i think but you know i feel like that brings us back to a discussion we had talking about uh mickey spillane in the sense of you know he was very explicit about only writing hard-boiled fiction Mm. to make money and you know in what sense is that true of everyone?
1: Right. Because I think today, even if even if you're going to write in, in genre and write some genre fiction, you know, it would only really receive so much attention if there was some personal element to it, if it was not just genre fiction, as it were, but also had something else on top.
2: That's interesting, the idea of uh, authenticity and whether or not, what what relationship you have to the, I guess, the setting that you're writing about. When we were talking about that, yeah. I did bristle. I was like, well, he did grow up kind of, uh, you know, in a Western town and all of the, the stories that he heard were Western. He, he left mm-hmm. and did all these things when he was 15, but he did grow up around people, even though they weren't cowboys anymore, they still lived kind of the cowboy lifestyle, you know, grew up around livestock, grew up around yeah. small, dusty towns. So at least he's steeped in the setting, but so, yeah, I it's not the, the same is- life and death.
1: So I think the difference is that he's work like the way that Louis L'Amour's writing is it's he may well have lots of experience and by all means you would admit that having experience would make you a better writer of a particular thing right I would be much better writer of seafaring stories if I know the name for all the parts of a boat and I know how mm. they work That would absolutely make it a better story Yeah that's a so, good point but I think the difference is that with Louis Louis L'Amour, there's no element of him bringing his own personality into the I mean it, Certainly he he brings his own moral values, as we've discussed, but it's not it's not explicit if it is. And the point is, like, if you were to ask him, I think he would just say, yeah, I was just writing a Western novel, you know? Whereas I think the difference is someone who says, I'm just writing a Western novel versus someone who says, I'm writing a Western novel, but really I'm trying to explore uh, themes of Mm. globalization and the impending climate crisis, and I want to explore this dialogue and discourse uh, through... The mode of the Western. I think that's a very different <laughs> way, way of approaching the genre, right, of approaching genre Aww. fiction. So I thought this book was, was really enjoyable, really fun. And I love this character of Hondo, as we've already mentioned, how ambiguous he is. And he's a man between worlds. He wears moccasins and he's very you know, sensitive he, and quite mysterious. But then I started watching the movie version, and it's just John Wayne being John Wayne. And I was like, John Wayne doesn't even begin to capture the complexity of Hondo. I've it's just John Wayne. Well, you know, uh, fun ten man walking around with swinging his dick between his legs, just does nothing for me whatsoever. And I feel like it just doesn't do justice to this story. Yeah, and I think it's
0: really interesting how John Wayne plays Hondo in the the film version of this, and he also plays. Books in the shootist. And one of the things I thought was so interesting, uh, was reading about this bit of like intertextual trivia in that in the shootist, when they're trying to paint a backstory for who books is, they literally just spliced footage from John Wayne acting as Hondo as this kind of like montage sequence, uh, to give a backstory for, for the shootist. And I thought that was such a, uh, creative and, and cool thing to do.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of what I—that's what kind of annoys me about these John Wayne, these John Wayne characters. Because reading the Western novels, I don't feel like you can easily map Hondo onto books. It's not—they're not the same. Certainly different. They're not the same guy by any means. They're so different. But when 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 it gets funneled through the prism of John Wayne, they just become interchangeable John Waynes. It's yeah, that's true. The the movie Western heroes are so much (laughs) flatter. And I think John Wayne's largely to blame for this. I I I actually quite dislike John Wayne movies. <laughs>
2: I I I kind of I do like hmm. John Wayne. Actually, he is kind of fun. I think if it's a lighthearted cowboy movie, because he is very one dimensional, like lawful yeah. good. There there's no questioning of anything, and he should not play the shootist. I know that's his last movie, and that's horrible to say, but he is not at all similar. If the way the way he, he portrays himself is earlier. not. <laughs> yeah that's all we were asking for <laughs> um but there's a there's an interesting thing when Clint Eastwood starts making his movies, his own cowboy movies, which are much darker he He has Those cowboys who sometimes they're better, and sometimes the cowboy is like almost evil and John Wayne yeah. wrote him a letter uh saying you know you're you're not this is not what a cowboy is uh you shouldn't be doing this It's like a cease and desist letter to
1: uh, Clint Eastwood.
0: <laughs> That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I can just imagine how many folks Clint Eastwood gave about that. <laughs> yeah. None. Yeah.
0: <laughs> In case you were wondering. <laughs> no. <laughs> This book, I feel like, is very um, – it has a really interesting relationship to the film that I, I'm not sure I've ever seen before in the sense of uh, Louis L'Amour wrote a short story uh, and sold that short story to Hollywood. Hollywood made the film titled Hondo. Uh, Hondo was released. Louis L'Amour then wrote the novelization that we read called Hondo, and that novelization of the film is recognized as one of the greatest westerns of all time. I feel like I've never seen a film novelization get such wide acclaim, uh, for any book that I've ever heard of. Wait, the, the, the movie came first? The movie came first. What? No. And you know, it's funny because there's some, so much of the the images that we get, especially of like the battle to me felt like very cinematic mm. and you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I just have to imagine Louis L'Amour watching the film and then writing like, uh, uh, yeah, like, like play by play descriptions of, of what's happening on the screen, um, I don't know. I have to imagine he's done more, but. I
1: love this reversal. I love. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I love the idea you could walk around and say, Oh yeah, Hondo's such a great book. And someone's like, Oh yeah, the book's okay, but have you seen the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Maybe this is the new frontier. Yeah. Movie novelizations.
1: (laughs) Well,
0: then it's interesting because we talk about John Wayne being flat. I can't imagine that John Wayne is any, uh, Flat-er than the original protagonist of the short story, because that, that short story is very, very short. It comes, you know, it's just like a magazine publication. So you you have to imagine that Louis L'Amour started with John Wayne's character and said, okay, how can we make this more deep? How can we yeah. make this more interesting and more complicated? Mm,
1: perhaps, yeah. Perhaps. All right,
0: well, I feel like that wraps up Hondo by Louis L'Amour. Our book next week is 310 to Yuma by Elmore Leonard. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify, go ahead and follow us. Uh, get notified when we publish. If uh, you're listening on iTunes, leave us a review. Uh, finally, if you want to give us a book to read, uh, send it to genrepodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach.
1: Talk to you later, Zach and Bub.